This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton Wells exploring the challenges in competition policy, law, and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer, or competitor. In this episode, Karon speaks with Professor Colin Bennett, who talks of privacy as a deeply human instinct, but also an inherently political idea. Oh, it's not only a trade-off, it's the big question about the future of the internet, in my judgment. Google and Facebook and other companies have built their business models on the back of being able to capture personal information without, generally without people's knowledge and consent, and processing it in ways that may be beneficial to us, but may not. Here's Karon Beaton-Wells. We talk a lot about privacy on competition law, about why it might be facing existential threat in the age of big data, how it might be relevant to competition, and what, if anything, regulators should be doing about it. Don't you think we should pause for a moment and ask ourselves some basic questions? What do we mean by the concept of privacy? Why does it matter? Who or what might be threatening it? Is it Big Brother we're most worried about or surveillance capitalism? In this episode of Competition Law, we're lucky to have with us someone who's been studying these issues for more than 20 years. Colin Bennett is a professor in political science at the University of Victoria in Canada, and he lives and breathes privacy. He's particularly interested in the social and political implications of new information technologies and in the ways in which public policy relating to privacy are being developed. He's written six books on the topic and numerous reports to government. Colin warned me he knows nothing about competition law or antitrust, and I told him that's a relief. It's time that we antitrust experts learned something about the topic that we like to talk so much about these days. Colin, just how and why does a political scientist become interested in privacy? Um, That's a very good question. When I started getting involved in this subject, which is really when I did my PhD thesis back in the late 80s and 90s, so that off the bat ages me, I guess, I realized that the people who were writing about privacy were mainly lawyers or a few people involved with technology, computer scientists, computer engineering, and so on. There were one or two sociologists, but I regard privacy and all of the issues concerning privacy and uses of personal information as essentially about power and how large organizations can have power over individuals because they can capture and process and manipulate personal data about them. And political science is about power. Political theory is about power. And so that's how I have over the years tried to identify my contribution to this vast and fascinating area. Indeed, and it is inherently interdisciplinary, is it not? Oh, absolutely, yes. My work draws upon sociology, history, philosophy, political theory, some technology, uh, geography, you name it. It cuts across 
large numbers of disciplines in the sciences, in the humanities, and the social sciences. Is there such a thing as the economics of privacy, though? Do you find many economists working in this area? You do indeed, yes. And for many years, questions about whether we should have a property right over our personal data, like we have a property right over our intellectual property, has been a question debated for about 25, 30 years now. And some people seriously have advocated it as a possible solution to the this problem. If you give individuals a property right over their personal data, then, well, maybe organizations have got to pay royalties when they use it. That solution has not really been taken up with any great enthusiasm. But more generally, the question about whether or not doing privacy well can be to the benefit of corporations, whether corporations can compete over privacy is a matter of extraordinary interest and is very compelling these days, or whether or not they see that they're better off in trying to capture as much data as possible. Those are profoundly important economic questions, both domestically and internationally. I'm so glad you bring that up because indeed for many of our listeners who are in the area of competition law or antitrust, those are questions that are increasingly increasingly looming large, that is, whether or not data is a source of market power or competitive advantage. And related to that, the question as to whether or not privacy protection might undermine competition or indeed might be a force for competition. And there are certainly competing schools of thought on that question. It might be something we get back into a little later But I actually want to start with some brass tacks and ask you just what privacy means. Now, before we get into that question, I'm going to play you just a short clip from YouTube and a show called The Week in Google. So let's listen to this. Okay. You asked a provocative question, Jeff. What is privacy? What is privacy anyway? We keep on presuming that anything about you is private. That any no. piece of information someone gets is private. That's a big presumption. No, right? and, and, Privacy has and, to hinge around the notion, I think, of harm. That if this is known and if you if, if you didn't want it known and now it's known, there's harm to you. But, but... That's not true. That's not true. Well, if you go to a sporting stadium, there's a camera in the sporting stadium by a company called FanCam. You have absolutely no privacy when you enter a sporting stadium. You sign it away on your ticket. You sign it uh, away when you Robert, enter Robert, the sporting hold on, hold on. You're in a public place. Of course you have no privacy. There's no such thing right. as, as, as privacy in public. So again, now, it's, it's a misnomer to say that that when right. you're in public, you're, someone knows you're there. That's private. It's not private at all, by definition. Right. But if your if your wife does a search on a photo and sees you sitting next, yeah, to but you, no, but that, I think yeah, no. If, if, uh, if here's privacy. Goes, if I'm sitting on the says, John, I don't want anybody having pictures of me. A rather energetic discussion about just what does it mean when we expect or don't expect to be in private. Now, that makes me ask, is there some general agreement or consensus about the meaning of privacy? No, there isn't, at least not in public discourse. Now, that conversation that you just played, both commentators were confused on a couple of different questions. I thought you might say that. So let me let me just try and sort it out for you. Many people, including myself, believe that privacy is an inherent human right, that it attends to us by virtue of our humanity, by virtue of our citizenship. And we all know when lines are crossed, whether or not harm is done. 
So when one of those commentators said, well, it's all about harm, it's all about risk, and it's all about what the consequences are, he's looking at it instrumentally. He's looking at it saying, well, it doesn't really matter what information is to circulate it about me, provided there's no harm done. Of course, that begs the question of how do you know that harm is going to be done? So that's the first distinction. And the second distinction is this question, and it's quite a misleading distinction between a public place and a private place. So one of them said, well, you don't have any privacy by definition in a public place. Well, not to put too fine a point on it, that is nonsense. Simply because I'm out in public does not give anybody out there the license to, for example, take photographs of me, track my movements, upload it to the internet, share it with law enforcement, etc., etc. Simply because you're out in public, and of course there's a very difficult distinction between what's private and public, doesn't mean to say that you lose all rights over the personal information that circulates about you. There are some organizations who have, may have a right under some context to monitor you in a public space, but not everybody. So those kind of conversations, I think, are not helpful. And you're now going to ask me what is a better way to look at it, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I am. I certainly am. Um, but before perhaps you get into that, which is really the grist of what we're going to discuss, in that conversation, it seemed they were talking mostly about what I think of as behavioural privacy, so what you do on the toilet or what you eat when you're watching the soccer. But much of the public discourse nowadays, at least in the antitrust world, is about information privacy. So when you're talking about private information, how far does that concept of information go? I mean, is it just about your name and your birth date and where you live, perhaps? or could it go further? Oh, it certainly goes much, much further. The general consensus is that information should be defined very, very broadly as information that is personally identifiable. That information might, under some circumstances, be linked to an actual living individual, an identifiable individual. So to take that example about the toilet, that's a behavioral privacy issue. And in most societies, although not all, going to the bathroom is considered culturally an inherently private act. Things differ, however, if there was a monitoring of that behavior and information is collected. For example, if there's a video surveillance camera outside the bathroom. In some hospitals, for example, there's automatic mechanisms for taking samples. So to get to your question, the information itself really does trigger our privacy rules. But again, the distinction between what is behavior and what is information privacy is also more difficult to draw because increasingly new technologies are capable of capturing information about us in variety of different contexts, public and private, and generating information about that. Video surveillance cameras are the classic example. Yes, they may be taking photos of people in public spaces, but that is digitized, it's stored, it's retained, it's accessed, and it can be combined and linked to match with many other sources of data under many different circumstances. Okay, so you referred to the concept of information that is 
personally identifiable, i.e. it links to an individual, would it go so far as to capture information from which, say, inferences or assumptions could be drawn about an individual? And I'm thinking specifically about the Cambridge Analytica data breach, yes. where the firm in question harvested Facebook data to build personality profiles of people. So based on the data that people had on their Facebook profiles, they drew inferences about whether people were extroverted or introverted, for example. So that's personality information that may or may not be accurate. Is that captured by the concept of information privacy? Oh, yes, it most certainly would be, yes. If the source of that information is, say, an individual generating information by liking a particular Facebook page, it most certainly would be. But the example that you've given also demonstrates, I think, the limitations of privacy rules and privacy laws, because risks can attend to individuals as a result of the process of categorization. So the organization need not necessarily know who that individual is. But if you are categorized in a particular way and you receive treatment or services or decisions as a result of being a member of that particular category, then that also can carry risks. So we now also talk about concepts of group privacy and how we are classed as a result of complex data processing activities for voting purposes, for marketing purposes, but also for questions of law enforcement and other services that we might get and other treatments that we might get as a result of our associations with a variety of public organizations. Example would be no-fly lists. Most countries now operate no-fly lists of people who are presumed to be a risk to aviation security. That list is generated by a combination of data sources, online and offline, and which need not necessarily be originally about that individual. There may be inferences that are drawn from categories and suspicions of the kind of people that might be prone to engage in behavior that's a threat to aviation. Right. And one can readily see the potential social and economic implications of that kind of categorization slash discrimination. Now, you've mentioned the impact of information technology and the internet in particular as affecting or expanding understandings of privacy. I've heard it quoted in relation to Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook CEO, that given the internet, and that includes the internet of things in which we have sensors embedded in a myriad of devices we use in everyday life, he says privacy is no longer a social norm. Is he correct on that? Well, no. I don't know what he's referring to there. Of course, it's in Facebook's interest to make people believe that privacy is no longer a social norm so that they will share more. As I said at the outset, privacy is very much an instinct. I like to regard it as an instinct. It's a human instinct. We all know when our privacy is being invaded. We all know when we're asked questions that cross a line. Now, those lines might vary by individual, by generation, by gender, uh, according to the technology. But we all know that in certain contexts, uh, when we ask questions or information is captured about us, we know that it's none of their business. And that is a very, very powerful human instinct. 
And it's as strong amongst young people as it is amongst older people, I think. It's really a myth to say that young people don't care about their privacy. They care about it in different ways. They care about it, for example, in relation to their parents or their teachers or the university professors, not so much with their peers and their friends. And so Zuckerberg really has not read a great deal about the subject. Right. That would be my conclusion. And as you say, probably a fairly self-serving proposition. But that's interesting what you say about privacy being an instinct because often I hear debates about the degree to which people value their privacy given that online most people give away oodles of what would be regarded as private or personal information. So is there a disconnection between people's attitudes or instincts about their privacy and their actual behaviour? And how do we explain that? Well, yes. I mean, I think there is. And I think if you're just looking at the online context for the moment, I think most people now, as a result of the publicity, have got their minds around the bargain that struck between Google and Facebook and the other free services that we have online and have sort of understood that the cost of getting all these services for free is that they have to give up a certain amount of personal information. That said, there's an increasing number of people who do take measures online to protect their personal data, a variety of measures. The steady drip, drip, drip of stories about intrusions online and how people can get hurt when their personal information is processed irresponsibly has had an effect and slowly people I think are beginning to realize that they need to take measures but it's all a matter of the context that's what I would come down to and there are norms about privacy and the norms in your doctor's office may not be the same as your norms in your bank may not be the same as your norms in the street so for example if somebody came up to you in the street and put a microphone in your face and said, could you please tell me how much you earn? Most people would say, you know, take a hike, go away. And, and the reason is not because that information is necessarily always private, because we are asked in many contexts to declare our salaries, you know, when we are paying our taxes, for example. It's just that it's inappropriate in that particular context. There are certain contexts where the norms of what are appropriate questions are well established, right? The doctor's office, the bank office is one. The norms about what is appropriate on Facebook have not been established because it's so new. And so societies are just kind of working this out. And the technology is out there. People are using it. They generally speaking like it, but the risks are now emerging and there is a growing public consciousness about what those risks are. So the norms about what is appropriate in the social media space is something that's very new and we're just trying to figure out at the moment. And that's going to involve a balance between corporate interests, government regulation, but more generally, societal and cultural expectations. Talking about cultural expectations, so you've said privacy is very context-specific, but is it also at another level culturally specific? And let me give you this example to illustrate. So I travel quite a bit, and 
what I've observed is quite a difference between Europeans, particularly continental Europeans, and Americans. And I not including uh, the whole of North America and Canadians, because I confess I've never been to Canada much. And um, we are different, yes. <laughs> And I'm sure you're going to say you are different, like Australians and New Zealanders are. But exactly. What, but what I've observed is that, you know, Europeans can be quite aghast at how Americans will share the most personal details about themselves in everyday conversation, like what they earn, and they might even ask you what you earn and who they're suing. But Americans, on the other hand, can be quite taken aback when they learn the extent to which government interference, as they would see it, in the private lives of citizens is accepted in Europe. So the fact that in Germany, everyone has to be registered with the police at all times. And in France, the police can turn up at your home and check if your TV is licensed. And Americans would be just astonished and appalled at that. So is privacy a culturally specific concept? Yes, it most certainly it is. But it's more complex than simply American cultures like this and European cultures like that. Anecdotes circulate around the media and the literature about the registration of populations in some European societies, which has historical legacies. Or when you go into a hotel in Europe, you have to give your passport, right? Which does not happen in the United States. And Americans will say, aha, well, there you go. That shows that Europeans are really not so concerned about their privacy. But you could think of thousands of different comparisons in different contexts where one would be considered more privacy protective than another. And so, yes, it's culturally specific. Yes, what we generally mean by culture, the overall social attitudes towards organizations, I suppose, certainly has an effect on how organizations behave on government regulations and so on. But boy, you've got to break that down by a whole load of other variables. Gender, generation, public sector, private sector. So it's very dangerous, I think, to generate thumbnail sketches of what a privacy culture is without really drilling down to specific examples. And then there are cultures within the United States. New York is not or Iowa. Same as in Europe. You know, Belgium is not the Czech Republic. As a privacy scholar, I'm always very, very nervous and very resistant to those kind of blanket generalizations about one culture versus another. Sure, that makes sense. But would you say that there is nevertheless what I would call a popular culture surrounding privacy, perhaps accelerated by the recent publicity surrounding Cambridge Analytica and going a bit back further to the Edward Snowden leaks, um, a sort of a moral panic um, yeah. or horror that is now around a potential yes. invasion. Yes, that's an interesting question. I don't think I would put it in the category of moral panics yet. But the one thing that I think has become apparent as a result of the Cambridge Analytica scandal and the variety of other issues that have come to light as a result of that is that people now see the risks of the inappropriate capture and processing of personal data can also mean 
a risks to who your government is or have implications for electoral results. Whereas, you know, in the past, people would say, well, you know, I've got nothing really to hide, you know, and it's only criminals that are going to get surveyed and monitored. And okay, you know, I get spam email and I get direct marketing that's a nuisance, but it really is not that important. But now I think it's come home to the general public in North America and in Europe that political parties, candidates, in association with a large number of companies that are quite obscure and operate beneath the surface, are capturing data about the electorate, sometimes in violation of privacy norms, and using that data in order to profile the electorate and target them with messages online and offline. And so the violation of privacy rules, as we've seen with respect to the Brexit referendum and to some extent with the Trump election, have now woken people up and said, oh, wait a minute, this is really now serious because the use of personal information can determine what candidates and parties do and can actually change the results of elections. So I think that's the moment that we're in right now. And governments the world over are trying to grapple with this in a way that they haven't before, including uh, your own in Australia and mine here in Canada. So we've been skirting around the issue, and I now want to come to it fair and square, and that is when does privacy matter or should it matter? And we've canvassed what you've put as a fairly misconceived idea that there has to be some harm for privacy to matter. And I note in passing that that indeed appears to be the view of the Google CEO, Eric Schmidt, who said, if you're doing nothing wrong, you have nothing to hide. You said instead two things I want to pick up on and explore a bit further, that actually it has some intrinsic worth or value that goes to our humanity. And I want to unpack that a bit. And then you've made the second point that it also has not just value at an individual level, but value at a social level, a public value, let's say, when we're talking about the integrity of our democracy. So let's just sit on this concept of privacy being a human right. And why do you say that it goes to the integrity of our humanity or personhood. Can you unpack that a little? Yeah. Well, first of all, privacy has been defined and articulated in a variety of different legal instruments internationally and nationally as something that is a basis of a democratic society. It's a way of controlling power by giving individuals right to privacy and by controlling how well, government institutions and corporations can capture data about you. It tries to restore a balance between the powerful organization and the individual. And that is an essential purpose and component of liberal democracy, that, you know, it's the individual who's the center of this community. And we grant government powers through the electoral process, etc., to govern in our name. And so privacy is one of the human rights that makes up that package of rights and which supports arguably liberal democratic culture. But at a deeper level, there's plenty of anthropological research, sociological research on countries that are 
less developed, less democratic, etc., which suggests that instinctively no society in human history where individuals have not claimed a right to privacy, have not claimed that there are certain behaviors, certain actions that should not happen in private. Even going down to the basis of, you know, how homes are built and whether they're built with walls or without walls. These are all matters that come to questions about the need of individuals from time to time to be separated from their community and their society. Different societies have different mechanisms for doing that in relation to different actions and behaviors. I mean, we mentioned earlier going to the bathroom, but it's a general need. And then beyond that, psychologists have also researched this issue and they demonstrated that those people who do claim and assert their privacy rights from society, from others around them, are also generally healthier human beings. It's part of being a well-rounded and healthy human being that you can seclude yourself from time to time and not be observed by others. So that's, I think, where I'm really coming from. And it's that motivation which drives this instinct that there are just some things that are none of your business. And we can all relate to that when we're asked questions and you say, no, that's really none of your business. Well, where does that come from? It doesn't come from law. It comes from something deep inside us, deep inside our psychology, which says, no, you have no business knowing that information. You have no business observing me doing this. That's fascinating. And it's something I can just instinctively relate to. I've also heard it said that the privacy instinct is actually at base about being free as a human being. We need to have some place we can go where we're not seeing, our thoughts are not known, and we're not being judged because I read that when we're in a state of being watched, our behavior might change, we might tend towards more conformism, more compliance for the need to avoid shame or humiliation. So it's actually about avoiding controls over our behavior. That's right. And not only being watched, but believing that you might be watched. That's the critical thing. People's behavior might change. They may not be observed at any one time, but if you believe that you might be observed then people's behavior does change, sometimes for the better, but sometimes for the worst. Many CCTV cameras that surround our cities in Western societies now are not actually operational. They're not actually generating any video feed, but they're there because it's shown that, well, you know, having a camera there can affect people's behavior because you think, well, there's a camera there. It must be operating even if it isn't. Yes. Yeah, you know, changing behavior for the better, I think, is the idea. In that, uh, well, in maybe, that maybe not, because people need sometimes to engage in behaviors that is resistant to authority and want to express themselves in ways that authority would not approve of. And if they feel that they're being watched or they might be watched, then that moderates their sense of their ability to express themselves. Mm. Okay, let's also unpack this other idea that you've touched on now several times, and that is privacy as integral to the workings of a liberal democratic society in connection with this argument about power being dispersed rather than concentrated, or at least there being a counterbalance to power in large organizations, whether they be government or private. Let's call that a social value or a collective or even communitarian value. It's just from an individual one. But are there tensions between that public 
or social value and other public or social values. And I'm thinking specifically about a free press or even free speech. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And those are tensions that have got to be worked out transparently and according to rules. Privacy is not necessarily antithetical to free speech. Privacy in many ways supports free speech. It is a fundamental need of the journalist, for example, in order to protect his or her sources. Nobody's claiming that this is a universal value. It's a universal right. It has to be balanced or negotiated amongst other competing rights. And some of those competing rights, by the way, are not just of law enforcement. They're not just about power. They're not just about authority. They may be competing interests which are of a progressive nature. So, for example, there are several areas of our policy disputes these days where the environmental agenda comes up against privacy rights. We have debates in this country about smart metering in the homes, which is monitoring the way the people are using their their appliances and so on for billing purposes, but which also creates a steady stream of information about what people are doing in their homes. There's very, very strong environmental arguments for doing that in order that you can encourage better behavior in the home and using appliances a more energy efficient manner. But at the same time, that goal does come up against privacy. So there's a whole range of collective values that privacy challenges and where you need mechanisms, and these are typically the roles of our privacy commissioners. You have one in Australia, we have one here, Europeans have them, which are supposed to figure out the appropriate balance in different contexts between public interests and the right of individuals to have some control over their personal information. And what about the trade-off between privacy and the free market? Because much of the debate, as I alluded to earlier in the antitrust world, is that privacy protection might be antithetical to the free market and in particular antithetical to innovation because we have now these mega platforms, we've talked about a couple of them, whose business model, which delivers us as consumers enormous innovation, convenience, connectivity and so on, is premised on vast amounts of data collection, processing and analysis. But privacy would really, depending on the level at which it is regulated and that regulation is imposed might interfere with or undermine that business model, which might be to the detriment of us as consumers in a free market. Is that one of the trade-offs that privacy scholars have thought about? Oh, it's not only a trade-off. It's the big question about the future of the internet, in my judgment. Google and Facebook and other companies have built their business models on the back of being able to capture personal information without, generally without people's knowledge and consent and processing it in ways that may be beneficial to us but may not. Whether or not that business model can continue in the future Aside from questions about regulation of privacy, I think is a huge issue and one that different societies are going to try and grapple with in different ways. The platform economy, not just Google, Facebook, but Uber and Airbnb and all of this relies on relatively free flows of personal data and the principle that personal information should only be captured and disclosed with the knowledge and the consent of individuals is one that directly confronts that. 
And that's why companies like these big companies are very resistant to the kind of privacy rules that, for example, have just been passed in California or the general data protection regulation in Europe. Facebook will say that now they're going to implement the general data protection regulation worldwide. Well, they spend millions and millions of dollars lobbying against that regulation at the time. And I really don't know that they know quite what they're claiming when they say that (laughs) or what the implications are i'm sure they don't (laughs) or i'm sure their lawyers do but i don't think mark zuckerberg does (laughs) not yet anyway well look i'm glad you brought up these regulatory developments and i want to ask you about some of the specifics of the ones you've mentioned but first of all let me ask you this would you say from your observations that there's now an international convergence on a particular approach to privacy policy, or is it still something that's very much determined at a national level and shaped by the distinctive characteristics in the political culture and ideology as well as the legal culture of each country? It is certainly shaped by each country and each jurisdiction, yes. But to answer your question, yes, I think we have seen a convergence and it's been a long-standing process which you know you can trace back to the 1970s and 1980s the more that personal data is shared internationally the greater need to make sure that rules are harmonized and there are various pressures for harmonization the technology itself produces pressures but there's international agreements and the most recent of which is the general data protection regulation that's come out of the European Union which implies to all EU countries, but also any company that's processing data on European citizens, wherever they might reside. So it's the closest that we've come yet to a global set of rules of the road for the processing of personal data. But this has only been in effect for, what, uh, three or four months, and so uh, we're yet to see the true effects of this. But yes, there is a growing international consensus, and there has been, on the meaning of privacy protection at a policy level. And I emphasize that. There's a growing international consensus on what it means for the responsible organization to process data legally and appropriately, yes. And so at a policy level, elites in many countries have gradually been able to push this question and develop some agreements over the basic privacy principles and the most appropriate mechanisms for enforcing those principles. Just briefly, can you tell us what those key principles are and which there is convergence? Uh, Yes. I mean, codification does vary from place to place, but in a nutshell, those principles give rights to individuals to control the circulation of information. That means that they're told how the information is going to be used only for explicitly defined purposes, and it should not be used for any other purpose without their consent. It gives them rights to access and correct that data if it's inaccurate or inappropriate or misleading. And it gives them rights to complain, rights of redress. On the other side, it obliges organizations to keep that information secure, to make sure that it's only accessed by employees who have rights to see it, and so on. And it makes sure that they're accountable for the information under their control. 
Responsible organizations in Europe and the United States have been building privacy programs for many, many years now and are doing very good things in order to ensure that they don't suffer a huge data breaches and their reputation is damaged. So there's a lot of good that's going on. But what we're seeing more recently is that it's not just the principles, but through instruments such as the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, there's been a greater consensus on the best way to enforce these principles through mechanisms such as privacy impact assessments, which is what organizations should conduct when they're developing a new service, or through auditing or through certification mechanisms and so on. And so people such as myself and hundreds of others who are in this policy space have worked to try and figure out what does work, what instruments do work. And the GDPR is now a sort of reflection of the global, I like to see it as a toolbox, you know, the different tools in the toolbox. And that's a global list of tools that the regulators and companies have at their disposal to do the right thing. So, yes, we're definitely seeing a convergence of understanding here. In the aspects of the rights associated with privacy, on which you say there's now convergence, one you didn't mention, but one that is critical in the context of competition, was the right to have your data transferred in a digitally practical form to a third party. Now, that, as you can readily imagine, does have quite significant competition potential in that it allows for switching. Is data transfer and the related concept of data portability, is that part of the package of principles on which there's international convergence? Yes, it very much is. And it's controversial. The right of data portability, it's hedged around by certain qualifications. But what it essentially means is that if you engage with a social media platform and you generate information about yourself on the social media platform through your posts and etc cetera, etc cetera, that you should have a right to take that away and transfer it to another platform in a transferable form now I have no idea how that is going to work out in practice. But interestingly, it doesn't only implicate social media platforms. I mean, it could apply, for example, to your bank. You want to change your bank. Uh, you should have a right to go to your bank and say, um, you have a lot of information about me, about my credit worthiness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I want you to transfer that to another bank in a way that that bank can read it. It's a universally very, very important principle in the GDPR, but it's not yet clear how it's going to work out in practice. Interestingly, in Australia, the Productivity Commission has recommended and the government's accepted that there should be a comprehensive consumer right to data, which is a shared right of control, which empowers the consumer to a request of their data holder that their data be transferred, as I've said, in a digitally practical form. But the question of how, which you <laughs> raise, is dealt with by saying, okay, this is comprehensive, but it will be triggered on a sectoral basis. We'll start with banking, then we'll do energy, then we'll do telecoms. And it will be the industry that has to come up with 
data specifications, standards and protocols for transfer because each one will be different on an industry basis and the competition regulator who has to approve those. So it's an interesting way of dealing with the practicalities, which I think if you leave it just to the individual data holder, you may not get the competition result that you want, which is to facilitate switching. Well, I'm sure that's the case. And of course, all of that has to be done for free. Mm, <laughs> you know, right. And mm. what companies are going to be able to afford that? I mean, the associated thing here is the right to be forgotten. That's the sort of flip side of this. And that's what has generated perhaps more media attention. And that's the right to have data deleted. The right to have your data deleted if, for example, well, Google is the one that's been the, the focus of attention here. If you Google your name and you find that you're associated with a piece of information that may be true, but which is obsolete or is damaging your reputation. The European courts have said that Google has got to take that down. And that's what Google is doing right now. And they've had millions of requests and they're spending millions and millions of dollars trying to adjudicate these requests. That's something that I don't see as a long-term solution to that issue. No. Certainly lots of unanswered and possibly unanswerable questions in the space. I want to ask you, though, about the governance of privacy, because you've written a wonderful book on this that I'd recommend to our listeners who are interested in understanding how privacy policy is being made and shaped at the international level. Now, when we talk about governance, we're talking about the networks and types of players or actors in a process of making rules and possibly enforcing them. So at the international level, who would you say are the influential actors in the governance of privacy in leading the way in setting the principles and the, creating the enforcement mechanisms you've talked about? The driver behind the rules is the European Union. Mm. And it has been for the last 30 years or so. Mm, this is the Brussels effect. Yes, the Brussels effect. And other countries have, whether or not they're interested in privacy, whether or not there's any demand from citizens, have gradually been passing roughly equivalent data protection laws in order to try to get adequacy determinations from the European Union so that there can be a seamless transfer of personal data. So that's had a very, very profound effect. So the European Commission, for one, increasingly the data protection authorities, which are the independent regulators, which now exist in some hundred countries around the world, but in the European Union, they're going to be developing more coordinated policy on data protection as a result of a data protection board that's supposed to develop a more consistent way to deal with the Google, Facebook, and the other big digital companies. So we'll see how that works out. So that I would say but also, you know, the chief privacy officers of the big companies themselves who are fighting their own battles within their companies for better treatment of privacy and better understanding of privacy because they believe that it's in the company's interest to get this right. So there's a network of chief privacy officers now that meet regularly, share experiences, draw lessons about what works and what doesn't, 
And so it's not an easy question to answer because the network is so vast and it's also increasingly technical. So there's a third group of people, I would say, which will be the technologists who may be working for those companies, but also may be working in universities and who are trying to figure out privacy-enhancing technologies that consumers can use. Mm, Privacy by design. Privacy by design, yes, we haven't talked about that, which will build privacy into these products and services at the outset rather than as an add-on at the end. And there are plenty of creative ways that you can use encryption, for example, to allow public agencies and private organizations to do what they want to do, but without compromising people's privacy. Where do you see big tech, though, generally in the governance of privacy? There's been obviously a lot of publicity about the big tech companies or some of them lobbying government hard on a whole range of issues, whether they be privacy or antitrust, IP or other aspects of public policy that affect their business. Do you see them as trying to influence the regulatory discourse in their favour and are they having an effect? Oh, yes, absolutely. It's impossible to generalize. It's wrong to generalize about big tech because they have different interests. I don't think you can really lump together Microsoft with Google and with Facebook, and they have different interests, different business models, and so on. But yes, of course, they're lobbying for their interests globally, both uh, you know at the European level, at national levels as well, to ensure that national data protection laws don't go too far. In, uh, but at the same time, uh, they want to be seen publicly as being privacy-friendly. So they realize that even though many of them do operate as instruments of surveillance, and that's what Facebook is in my judgment, they will tell you explicitly that privacy is very important to us. You know, your privacy is very important to us. That's become a cliche. So they want to give people choice over how their personal data is used, but at the same time, they realize that the business model does rely upon the capture of vast amounts of personal data. So they try and negotiate that tricky line in different ways in different contexts and spend millions and millions and millions of dollars trying to do that. Mm. And do you think they're likely to have any impact in actually reining in the now what seems to me to be a tide of privacy regulation? Oh, no, they already have. Behind the scenes, it's often not known about. But behind the scenes, these companies are lobbying at various levels. I mean, the big ones, the ones who've got the money to afford the lobbyists and the lawyers. And that has an effect on the way that privacy laws are written, the way that exemptions are written, the way that different words are written. And we all know that the devil's in the details in law. And those details sometimes come out in favor of large companies. So yes, there's always has been very, very heavy lobbying efforts by companies trying to moderate what they see as the the effects of privacy law. But at the same time, publicly, they don't want to be seen to be doing that. They will go to privacy conferences. They will fund privacy conferences. They will fund privacy research, <laughs> right? Uh, they will, you know, have their chief privacy officers going to give speeches saying, you know, what a great job they're doing in protecting people's privacy privacy. And sometimes they do. I don't want to paint them all with the same brush here. But within these companies, there's often fierce battles fought between the privacy activists, if you like, within companies and then those who want to capture as much data as possible in order yeah. to make a buck. Yeah. 
I'm very reluctant to start to wrap this up, Colin, because this is such a fascinating discussion. But I do need to draw to a close. So I'm going to just ask you about Europe. Just a couple more questions, because everyone's eyes are fastened on Europe at the moment, not just in the privacy area, but in the antitrust area, and indeed on the interconnection between antitrust and privacy. So we mentioned the Brussels effect, the fact that really it's been Europe, not just in connection with the GDPR, but for many years leading the way on setting privacy standards and clamping down on its enforcement. What is it about Europe? Is in the history, in the culture, in the political ideology? Why is the privacy push coming out of Europe and not out of the United States or out of some other part of the world? Well, there's two or three answers to that. It's not all of Europe, of course. It's principally Germany and France, I would say, Netherlands as well. Spanish have been very active, other countries less so. The easy answer is that many of these countries have recent memories of authoritarian rule and are very suspicious about the way governments used personal data. So the early privacy laws, the early data protection laws come from Europe. Not solely. The United States passed a Privacy Act in 1974. Canada was not much later than that. But most of them came out of the European Union. But the dynamic there was that once the Germans and the French had passed these strong laws for their government agencies and their companies, then they had an incentive to make sure those laws were exported across Europe. And so they did that through the what was originally a directive, which ensured that other countries within the European Union had equivalent laws so that data could flow seamlessly within the European Union. Then, once you have a trading block of 300 million people with the same rules, that's bound to have extraterritorial effects. And that had an effect in Australia and Canada, Asia, other countries, and also the United States. So I put more emphasis, I think, on the international economic impact of a set of rules than I do on the cultural explanation here. And then once you have those rules in place and you have laws in place and you have experts in place and you have institutions in place, then these institutions, the data protection agencies, have an incentive to remain in place and to get bigger. And so, you know, you have a an institutional bureaucratic dynamic there, which has produced ultimately the general data protection regulation and more and more resources actually going to these agencies in preparation for the enforcement of this new law across the European Union, including, I have to say, in the United Kingdom, which is, of course, now trying to negotiate how this is all going to work post-Brexit. But that's another story in another program, I suppose. Yes. And I have to ask you one last question. I can't resist asking this, even though I'm pretty sure I know what your answer is going to be. So some in the United States have described the G GDPR as Europe's, and I quote, tariff by other means, which is implied that this is a form of digital protectionism. And of course, there's some irony in United States criticizing protectionism, but a way of effectively sheltering European tech companies from their American counterparts, and it's only going to hurt European consumers. So your view on that? Well, it's not an argument I would dismiss out of hand, but European companies had this ability since 1995 because the directive had protections about the extraterritorial 
export of personal data. And back in the 90s, the same complaints were made. But somehow that didn't have any effect on developing European information digital industries, right? They all come out of the United States. So, Mm. I mean, if it did have that motivation, then it didn't work. (laughs) I won't say there's some truth in it, but I think there's some genuine concerns here. And, of course, data privacy rules are now front and center in all kinds of areas of trade agreements. They are, for example, with the North American Free Trade Agreement, which is being renegotiated right now. And they're also going to be in the context of the World Trade Organization and the relationship between the United States and Europe. I think we're going to see those issues become more prominent in the world of data protection going forward. And I also think that the world of data protection is going to be increasingly influenced by a whole range of other related policy issues, such as intellectual property, such as competition, and so on. So it's going to be more difficult to isolate this as a discrete policy sector that can be controlled by this particular policy network. According to Google's CEO, we only need to worry about our privacy when we have some dark secret to hide. But is that really true? Not so, according to Colin Bennett. As he's explained, there's much more to privacy than meets the eye. It may be a slippery concept but it's one we're having to come to grips with in the internet age, and one that politicians and policymakers are grappling with, all in an effort to ensure we have the protections we value, but at the same time can continue to enjoy the benefits of a data-based economy and society. Next, on Competition Law, we talk to Professor Michael Gall from the University of Haifa. Michael has been giving a lot of thought to how businesses are using algorithms to organize and analyze our data and what that might mean for competition. Until then, you can find links to some of Colin's recent work on privacy in the show notes and, as always, our other episodes and links at competitionlore.com. Don't forget to subscribe and do leave us a review. Competition Law is produced by written and recorded.com and I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. Beaton-Wells.